0: So just to recap this morning's sermon, we focused on Paul's admonition to the Philippians to be humble like Christ. Paul had been charging them to be united, and so we learned that humility would be necessary if there was to be genuine unity among the Philippian believers. This humility would also require them to live selflessly, considering others as being more significant than themselves, and thus, putting the needs and concerns of others above their own. Paul then wasted no time in pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ as the prime example of humility. Christ displayed all the marks of humility perfectly, denying his own rights, lowering himself in rank and dignity, serving others. We saw that this humility led Christ into a state of humiliation that we know of as the condescension. We saw how Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by taking on human nature. How he, as a man, became obedient to God the Father, even to the point of dying, a humiliating death nailed to a cross. We saw how Christ serves his people in the greatest way possible securing our salvation from the wrath of God and, by His stripes, healing us, creating in us new hearts and making us able to humble ourselves before God in love and adoration, making us able to love and serve each other, causing us to have the same mind that Jesus Himself had. So exploring the truth of what Jesus did for us in becoming lowly to serve us has hopefully blessed us and encouraged us. And hopefully it has moved us to follow his example to serve our brethren. Indeed, exploring exploring Christ's lowliness has been worthy of our focus and attention. However, we must remember that Christ's story did not end with his humiliating death. From verse 9 we read, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Our Lord Jesus did not remain in a state of humiliation and loneliness. The God-man the only mediator between God and man, Jesus the Christ, he rose from the grave after his humiliating death. His body was resurrected and he ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ humbled himself and therefore God has highly exalted him. Brothers and sisters, humility with a view to being like-minded servants of our brethren was our focus this morning. But tonight, we will focus on humility with a view to exaltation and the glorification of God. Tonight, we will see the result of genuine Christ-like humility as we look at the exaltation of Christ and how it has brought glory to God. Now, I want to speak, first of all, about the relationship between humility and exaltation. Key to understanding this portion of the text from verse 9 to 11 is understanding that those who humble themselves before God will, in due time, be exalted by God. Thus, there exists a close relationship between humility and exaltation. Now these ideas can seem opposed to each other. After all, highness is literally the opposite of lowness. But when under the context of the life and mission of Christ, we see just how closely related they are. The Apostle Paul is teaching us here that God exalted Christ because he humbled himself. That his exaltation was as a result of him humbling himself. And Furthermore, as we will see, Christ's exaltation was his reward for humbling himself. The scripture says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That word, therefore, is very important because it acts as a bridge between these two seemingly antithetical ideas. These two seemingly opposed ideas of lowness, and highness. Actually, the scripture is saying that the two aren't opposed to each other. They're not opposed to each other. Humility before God leads to exaltation by God. God has been pleased to bless and reward the humble because only the humble glorify Him as they should. And God, through His exaltation of the humble, has been pleased to reveal Himself as the one who alone has the power and authority to exalt so that he alone receives the glory to further impress on you the close relationship between humility and exaltation just look at what scripture has to say proverbs twenty-nine, twenty-three: 23 one's pride will bring him low but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Luke 1, 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Psalm 138.6. 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 3, 34. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble He gives favour. 1 Peter 5, 5 Clothes yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Indeed, it is clear from Scripture that God loves the humble. So hopefully now you can see that having examined the humility of Christ, it is appropriate that we should also examine the result of that humility namely the exaltation of Christ. The central theme of my message tonight is actually the same as the one this morning. Be humble like Christ. However, as I mentioned earlier, the focus is a little different. This morning we focused on the necessity of humility in Christian unity. Examining the humility of Jesus was necessary for us to grasp what Paul was demanding of us when he admonished us to be like-minded, selfless, humble servants to one another. But now we're going to be looking at the reward for humility and what it tells us about how God views the humble. We'll also see how humility gives glory to God. So the sermon tonight will be broken down into two main parts. Number one, we have the nature of the exaltation of Christ. And number two, the cause and purpose of the exaltation of Christ. So with all that said, let's examine the nature of the exaltation of Christ. Now there are four commonly recognized distinct stages to Christ's exaltation. And those are... His resurrection, His ascension, His seating at the right hand of God, and His physical return to earth. Resurrection, ascension, seating at the right hand of God, and return to earth. Now one can preach whole sermons on each of these four stages, but a brief look at them will suffice for recognizing just how awesome the exaltation of Christ is. Firstly, the resurrection. Now, I'm sure all of us are familiar with it to some degree. But what is it that actually happened in the resurrection? Well, most of us would say that Jesus, having died, came to life again. That's a pretty simple answer. And it's not a wrong answer, but when examined more closely, we see that the resurrection of Jesus was much more than him coming to life again when we consider it in theological terms, the resurrection is not simply the dead coming back to life. What if I were to make the claim to you that Jesus was the first person to be resurrected from the dead? Some of you might say, well, hang on a second. What about Lazarus? He was really dead and he really came back to life. As a matter of fact, it was Jesus who personally raised him prior to his crucifixion. So that proves that Jesus wasn't the first person to be resurrected from the dead. Well to that I say, yes, Lazarus was indeed raised from the dead. But he was not resurrected from the dead. You see, when discussing those who are raised to life from the dead, there are two categories. Those who are resurrected and those who are revivified. Now, admittedly, searching a normal dictionary for these two words will yield no difference in their respective meanings. Both basically mean to bring back to life from the dead. But as I said, in the theological context, if you were to look in a theological dictionary, the two words have become distinct because they need to be distinct. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to speak accurately about these two categories. Now then, the obvious question is, what's the difference? Well, here's the answer. Sometime after Jesus revivified Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus died again. After Jesus revivified him, Lazarus continued to live his life for some time. He aged in the way that we all do. He probably continued to experience illness and infirmity in the way that everyone does. And eventually, whether by natural means or otherwise, Lazarus died again. And how do I know this? Well, he isn't still around. There isn't some 2,000 year old man named Lazarus walking around telling us about how things were in his day. Also, the scripture gives us no indication that he was translated to heaven without dying in the way that Enoch or Elijah were. So the obvious conclusion is, he died again and turned to dust like the vast majority of humanity. That's what happened to everyone who was ever revivified. The widow's son in the Book of Kings, Jairus's daughter Tabitha, they were all raised to life but eventually died again. However, those who have been resurrected from the dead are raised immortal. They will never die again. That's the difference. That's why I said that the resurrection of Jesus was much more than him coming to life again. Romans 6 verse 9 says, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Rather, he came to life again and there was a change to his physical body. To be clear... It was the same body that was beaten and spit upon and pierced. The same body that bore our sins and was nailed to a cross. That same body was raised to life again. But it had been changed. In fact, you could say that it had been upgraded. In the words of 1 Corinthians 15, What was sown perishable... Rather, let me say that again. What was sown was perishable... But what was raised was imperishable. What was sown in dishonor was raised in glory. It was sown in weakness. It was raised in power. It was sown in natural body. It was raised a spiritual body. For his perishable body had put on the imperishable. And his mortal body had put on immortality. So these two categories, the revivified and the resurrected. These two categories exist because the upgraded, imperishable or resurrected body of Christ must be distinguished from the regular, perishable, revivified body of Lazarus and all those who were raised to life in the scriptures prior to Christ's death. Revivification was a gracious act of God used to display his power, to be sure but it was never meant to be our final hope. The renewed life is only temporary. Rather, resurrection is our hope. Resurrection means eternal life which we will spend with God. This is our hope. So praise be to God that the Scripture says that since we have been united with Jesus in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection. Like his, Jesus will never die again. Neither will we. So now, all of you may be looking forward to your resurrected bodies and wondering what these upgraded bodies will be able to do. Well, I don't know. We see that after his resurrection, Jesus was able to appear and disappear suddenly from location to location. But was this a, a feature of his upgraded, resurrected human body? Or was this the manifest power of his divinity? I have no idea. And I don't think anyone knows. All I can say for sure is that our resurrected bodies will be perfectly suited to the new heavens and new earth. In any case, the significance of the resurrection is that it exalted Jesus and showed him to have power over death. It identified him as the one who has eternal life in himself as the one who laid down his life and had the power to take it back up again. It also exalted Jesus as the only one who was able to pay the price for the sins of men. As scripture teaches us, the resurrection was a sign that the payment for sin was accepted by the Father. So that was the first stage of Christ's exaltation. The second stage in the exaltation was the ascension. Jesus, having completed His earthly mission to redeem those whom the Father had given Him, returned to the Father. After His resurrection, He appeared to many of His disciples, teaching them about the Kingdom of God. Then, on the Mount of Olives, in sight of all His disciples, He rose from the ground into the sky until a cloud hid Him from their view. The Ascension is a very important stage in the exaltation of Christ for several reasons. It was a sign that he had completed his work and that all his labors had been accepted by the Father. Only now that it was complete could he return. It was a sign that his time of humiliation and loneliness was at an end. Because now, quite literally, he would be high and lifted up. No longer would his glory be veiled. No longer would his majesty be hidden. Now he was being exalted. It's interesting to note, brethren, that the next time we see Jesus in the New Testament, after his ascension, in John's vision, we see not an ordinary, unremarkable carpenter's son, but a terrifyingly awesome superman with snow-white hair and eyes blazing with fire and a booming voice like that of a raging sea or an enormous waterfall. This was a vision of the ascended and exalted Christ. The ascension signified his promotion to a higher office. His ascension from the earth signified his moving from a lowly life of sorrows as the sin-bearing lamb to the office of high priest and king. The grim task of the suffering servant now complete, he would now be literally raised and promoted to the station of highest honor in heaven, enthroned as king. And now to the third stage of the exaltation of Christ, his seating at the right hand of God. Having ascended into heaven, he fulfilled what he spoke to the chief priest on the night when he was betrayed, saying, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus returned to his Father in heaven to be officially installed as king and ruler, having all authority and power. The Son of Man, Jesus, was exalted to the right hand of God. And as our text says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. From this position, he governs supernaturally over the church and over heaven and over all the earth. He commands the whole heavenly host and sends them where he wills to do his bidding. He controls all of nature and exercises dominion over all men and angels and animals and even those who are hostile to his kingdom. From this position he serves as high priest having presented his wants and for all sacrifice of himself to the father for the continued outpouring of grace and blessing to the saints continually making intercession for his people. This man Christ Jesus is indeed high and lifted up, having the highest position of honor and authority at the right hand of God. Now I think many people then miss the awesome significance of this stage of the exaltation. And I think it's because ironically of the it's ironic because of the, the saturation that the gospel message has here in the West. We have gotten so accustomed to hearing about Jesus being God. So it's not really shocking to us that he should be at the Father's right hand as king and ruler. But realize though, Jesus is truly a man. So a man, an actual man, is seated at the right hand of God. in in heaven. This is amazing. Let's examine this for a second. As I said this morning, Jesus is truly God and truly man. He possesses both divine nature and the human nature. Thus when we consider the exaltation of Jesus, we are considering the exaltation of everything that he is. Both natures being exalted. Now here is where we must be careful to avoid heresy. When we think about the divine nature being exalted at his seating at the right hand of God, It could only be in the sense of his rights as God being taken back up whereas he had laid them down in the condescension to become a servant. It could only be in the sense of the resumed display and showing forth of the divine glory that he had with the Father before the world began. With respect to Jesus' divine nature, it cannot be said that any new glory... Or any new status was gained in this or any other stage of the exaltation. And this is for reasons that we talked about this morning. God has eternally been infinitely glorious. God does not grow or shrink. And nor do any of his attributes. He does not change. He stays the same forever. So that is how we are to think about the exaltation of the divine nature. It is in the resumed recognition and resumed display of power and glory that always was, but was veiled and hidden while Jesus lived among us as a servant of the earth. It's in the taking back up of divine rights that were always possessed but set aside during the time of his humiliation. So that being said, consider now the human nature. While it is true that we humans have worth as image-bearers of God, let's not make the mistake of viewing ourselves too highly. After all, we were made from the very dust and dirt of the earth. The stuff that we and the animals walk on. It's the lowest thing that there is. We are dependent creatures that need to sleep or we die. We need to eat and drink or we die. And as a matter of fact, as our American friends can tell us, there are many places where if we simply go outside without the right clothing, we will die. Let's face it, we aren't as impressive as we think we are. Yet, a being with a human nature just like ours, an actual man has been exalted to sit in authority over all creation, having all power and all authority. This is mind-blowing. Think about it. The very position where God sits in man has been placed there by God. This is extremely high honor. Friends, this is the honor that belongs to the Son of Man, the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. Jesus as far as his Divine nature was concerned was always high and exalted, but his human nature Having humbly obeyed God was given a unique honor among those born of women to sit at the right hand of the father So I want you to think about this if ever you get overwhelmed with the state of the world and Doubt the graciousness of God and wonder if he has any regard or care for us meagre human beings. David in the Psalms ponders, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Friends, God has not only noticed us, But he has made himself like us to redeem us, and has seated the man Jesus at his right hand. This is absolutely amazing. Now, consider the fourth and last stage in the exaltation of Jesus. His physical return to earth. Having heard of all the authority and honor and power possessed by Jesus, It can be confusing to look around at the present state of our world and wonder, is any of this really true? Is Jesus really so high and exalted? Everywhere we look, He is being mocked and disregarded. His rule is being ignored. His decrees and commands are trod upon by men and women in every place. And what's more, His people, those whom he loves, are being slandered, being beaten, and even murdered. Many people look at these things and scoff, saying all this praying and praising that these Christians are doing. Jesus, if he even exists at all, doesn't seem to be acting on their behalf. Where are the armies that they say he has? Where is this heavenly host? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So where is the power of the so-called God-man? Just wait, is the message of Scripture. The day of the Lord is coming. The day is coming when the name, when the same Jesus who is seated at the right hand of power on high will be coming again. Just like he said he would. The same way those disciples so long ago saw him leave, he will return with the clouds of heaven, the armies of heaven following him, arrayed in white and fine linen, white and pure. On that day, wicked people of the earth will cry out for the mountains to fall on them, to crush them and bury them in a futile attempt to hide themselves from the Lord and his fury. Jesus the Christ will return in judgment. And whereas the first time he came, he was born in a lowly manger and was reviled and mocked and treated shamefully. Not so, brothers and sisters, with his second coming. When he comes again in judgment, he will come in glory and power. Whereas before he came as a silent lamb to the slaughter, when he comes again, he will be the roaring lion and he will be doing the slaughter. When he comes again, no more will he be the humble servant but the exalted king, the mighty warrior. The return of Christ is a significant stage in his exaltation because it is in this stage that all men will be forced to see and acknowledge him, to see and acknowledge that all judgment has been given into the hands, into his hands by the Father. And he will deal out Retribution to the wicked, and reward those who have trusted in Him. All men will see that Jesus is the man with whom they must deal. You can't go around Him to somebody else. You can't say, oh no, He's too scary, I'm going to go to somebody else. No, you've got to deal with Jesus. Again, as Philippians 2 verse 9 teaches, His name, Jesus' name is the name that is above every name. All allegiance and respect and honor is to be given to him, and will be given to him when he comes again, whether you like it or not. Verse 10 says that every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether you like it or not, you are going to be faced down on the floor before Jesus Christ. But woe to those who oppose the king. If the scoffers find it easy to deny the reality of Christ's exaltation in his resurrection, and they do, and deny his exaltation in the ascension, which they do, and deny his exaltation in his seating at the right hand of God, which they do, they will not be able to deny his second coming. At the second coming the church of Christ will be vindicated and the mouths of the scoffers shut. Make no mistake. Right now, the exaltation of Christ is a reality, but it is hidden from our sight. But the day is coming when every eye shall see Him. The exalted Christ will return in judgment to rule upon the earth. And as the Bible says, the government shall be upon His shoulders, and He will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And when all the wicked have been removed, God will live with us in the new heavens and new earth. And so Christ's kingdom shall never end. The return of Christ to the earth is significant because it puts an end to any doubt that God has highly exalted Christ. So in summary, the exaltation of Christ consists of those four stages. Resurrection, ascension, seating at the right hand of God, and his physical return to earth. Each one of those stages displays the fact that God has highly exalted Christ. So whenever you think about Christ's exaltation, we should now be able to more fully appreciate just how magnificent it is. So now having touched on the nature of the exaltation, we can begin to examine just how it came to be. We're going to be looking at the cause and purpose of Christ's exaltation. The text says that Jesus humbled himself and made himself lowly and obeyed God even to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Right away we see from the text that the cause of Christ's exaltation was God. He was the one who brought it about. Jesus did not exalt himself, but God exalted him. And this is so that the glory for Christ's exaltation would go to God as it says in verse 11. It is to the the glory of God the Father. So Paul has made a point to identify God the Father as the exalter. Emphasis is placed on God the Father as if his act of exalting Christ was based in him and his prerogative. After all, He is the one who gets the glory for it, as we see in Scripture. Now here's an important point that we need to think about. For God the Father to get all the glory for exalting Jesus, the Father's act had to be based on grace. His grace being the things that He does, not because He owes anyone anything, but because He chooses to do them even though He doesn't have to. When God acts out of his grace to give someone something, the person receiving cannot say that they earned or deserve whatever it is they're receiving. Grace cannot be earned. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Let me give an example. If you and I were strangers, but out of grace, I gave you a million dollars, then the glory for that would rightly go to me. Everyone who heard about it would say, "Wow, what a generous guy. The focus wouldn't really be on you because you did nothing but receive somebody else's grace. You received something that you didn't earn but was given to you freely. Thus, the text says that Christ's exaltation was to the glory of God the Father because he was the gracious giver. But now we have a little bit of a dilemma. Because the scripture presents Christ's exaltation as being the result of his humility. Christ humbled himself and obeyed God and therefore God exalted him. Christ's exaltation seems to have been earned by his humility and not as a result of the Father's grace. Going back to our analogy and modifying it a bit. It's as if rather than being strangers, I was your boss. If, then, you did your work and received the correct payment of a million dollars, then it's not out of grace that I have given you the money, but it was your right to get it. I didn't have a choice but to give it to you. In such a case, the glory would go to the worker for having worked so hard and earned so much. So, likewise, Christ is presented to us as having worked for his reward, his obedience, his humility. His humility. Yet the text says the exaltation of Christ was to the glory of God. So what do we do here? The question is, did Christ earn His exaltation, or was it graciously given by God? The scripture presents both as being true. But this is a dilemma because they can't both be true, at least not in the same sense. On one hand, if Christ's exaltation was based on God's grace, Christ would not be able to claim it from the Father as his right. Gracious gifts cannot be earned. They cannot be claimed as a right. And on the other hand, if Christ's exaltation was earned, then Jesus would have every right to lay claim to his exaltation, and it would be to his glory as opposed to the Father's. Just like the million dollars, it would have been what he worked for and deserved. So it would be his doing and to his praise. So how can the exaltation of Christ be based on both grace and merit? Well, the only way to resolve this is if God is the one who graciously offered the reward of exaltation to his son when he didn't have to. It is grace in that it was God's own choice to offer reward to his son for something that he was supposed to do anyway, namely humbling himself. Let me explain further what I mean. My children are supposed to obey me. When I say to them, Eliza, Levi, pick up your toys, compliance is required of them. And that's the end of it. If they were to come to me afterward and say, Daddy, we obeyed you and picked up our toys so now you have to give us some chocolate, I am well within my rights to say no. They are not owed a reward for simply doing what they were supposed to do. But, if out of grace, I say to them, Eliza, Levi, if you obey me and pick up your toys, I will give you some chocolate. Then, once they do what they were supposed to do in doing the work of obeying me and picking up their toys, then they can be said to have merited their reward all the while receiving it by my grace and to my glory as a good daddy who gave him a treat. In that way, the chocolate can be said to have been given by the grace of the Father to the glory of the Father, yet earned as a result of the work of the child. But this now raises a further question. Did Jesus owe the Father humility? I said just now that the father was under no obligation to offer a reward to his son for that which he was supposed to do anyway. That is, humbling himself. So the question is, was Jesus' duty bound to humble himself before the father? Was it the father's right to demand obedience and humility from Jesus? In the same way that I have the right to demand obedience and humility from Eliza and Levi as their father? Well, the answer to that question requires us to once again delve into the natures of, the two natures of Jesus. Consider Jesus' divine nature. As God, Jesus is equal with the Father. Can one who is equal with the Father be said to owe him humility? No. Equality with God was his right. Glory and majesty with him was his right. As God the Father is to be revered, so is God the Son to be revered. Now let me caveat that by saying that we do see within the Godhead this authority submission dynamic where the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit glorifies the Son. But notice that they do this because it has always been their good pleasure to do so. They don't do it out of any requirement for the son to submit because he is somehow lesser than the father. However, we as men do have a requirement to submit because our nature is lesser than that of God's. But it's not so with the persons of the Trinity. So with that said, in terms of the father and the son's inherent worth and dignity as divinity, there's no difference between them. One cannot demand humility from the other on the grounds of one being lesser than the other because they are equal. As a matter of fact, it is from this equality that the significance of Philippians chapter two, verse six and seven is derived. The significance of Jesus' condescension is seen in that he set aside what was rightfully his, namely equality with God. So as it regards Jesus' divine nature, We can't say that in humbling himself he was doing what he was supposed to do, or that, or doing what he was duty-bound to do. Ah, but now consider the human nature of Jesus. As a man, Jesus did indeed owe humility to God. As far as Jesus' humanity was concerned, Jesus was obliged to perfectly obey and reverence God and humbly submit to him. On account of his nature as a man being lesser to that of God having been created to serve God thus Jesus as a man was merely doing his duty in humbling himself before God yet God in his grace was pleased to offer reward for it and Christ being sinless was able to perfectly merit that gracious reward God the Father is that's shown to be gracious in the way that he is willing to reward Jesus for his humility. And this is very instructive for us. God wants us to learn something about how he regards humility in the way that he rewards his son. You see, human beings having been corrupted by sin since the fall are prideful by nature. As a matter of fact, It was pride that led to humanity's fall in the first place. How did the serpent tempt Eve? He enticed her with the notion that if she ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, she could be like God. Even Satan became a sinner due to pride. He boasted that he would ascend to the throne of God and that he would be like the Most High. Likewise, we in our sin are prideful by nature. Seeking to elevate our own will and desires and purposes above those of God. Sinful people thus despise genuine humility. Seeking only to be boastful and not valuing lowliness and self-denial. Even when sinners seem to be displaying humility, the truth of the matter is their motives are not pure. And how can they be? Their hearts are deceitfully wicked. What they think is humility is really just pride in disguise. (coughs) Some people even boast about how humble they are. How ironic is that? And yet others perform acts of humility only because it makes them feel good. It's still at the core of it all about them. Those who have not been saved by Christ despise genuine humility. Thus they disregard it. They want nothing to do with it. But God reminds us of its value and how much He loves the humble. He reminds us by the way He rewards those who are humble. Actually, now that I think about it, if we go back to the analogy of giving my children chocolate, my children are supposed to obey me. But if I want to express to them how much I love obedience, and how much I want them to do the right thing, then it would be a good idea for me to reward them for their obedience so that they get the picture, so that they understand, hey, obeying Daddy is something good, something pleasing, and something that I should aim to do. Because look how he rewards it. Look how pleased he is when I obey. And look how displeased he is when I disobey. And that's what God is doing here by, by showing us how he rewards humility. Just look at the high honours that the Son of Man has been given by God. God has subjected all things to Him. And we are not left out. What about those who follow Christ's example and humble themselves? What did the scripture say? It says that the meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, God wants us to know the value and blessedness of genuine humility before Him. God wants us to know that our rightful place as created beings is in worshipful submission and subjection to Him. We owe Him our humility simply by the fact that we are the creatures and He is the Creator. God owes us nothing but we owe Him honour and humility. Yet God in his rich grace offers to us reward for that which we ought to have given him for no reward. And furthermore, just as God shows us his grace in offering us reward for humility, Jesus shows us how to glorify God in the fact that he does not glorify himself. Note that Jesus does not exalt himself. Jesus shows us that The honor and title of exalter rightly belongs to God, and not to mere men. Since God is the one who exalts the humble, glory is seen to be His alone. Those who boast in themselves ultimately seek to rob God of His glory. That's what you're doing when you boast in yourself. You're robbing God of His glory. All who boast in themselves ultimately seek to dethrone God and enthrone themselves, just like Satan. But far from robbing God of glory that rightly belongs to Him, our very purpose in life is to bring Him glory, to ascribe glory unto Him, to recognize and acknowledge that which has always been true, that God is the one alone who is worthy of all honor and praise. We need to remember that the goal of Christ when He came to earth wasn't only our redemption, Actually, I can go as far as to say that it wasn't even primarily our redemption. As Pastor John taught us a few years ago, in actuality, our redemption is incidental in the grand scheme of things. So what then is the main point for the existence of all creation if it isn't us and our salvation? Ultimately, primarily, and centrally, it is the glorification of God. That's why we're all here. That's why everything exists. And that was the main reason why Jesus came to earth. Yes, it was to save us. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he cares for us. But ultimately, his mission was to the praise and glory of the Father. All of creation and everything that has ever happened or will happen in it is for the purpose of glorifying God. And this is why when... Paul concludes his teaching on Christ's example of humility and its subsequent reward, he says, to the glory of God the Father. That's how he ends the section. So let this be instructed to us. Let us seek not our own satisfaction or to glorify ourselves when we succeed at something. Let us not exalt ourselves. Give the honour and glory to God. Listen, when you impress your hopefully soon-to-be boss on a job interview, don't boast in yourself. Remember who has shown you favor and blessed your work. Glorify God. When you get back your results after a challenging exam and you've done well, remember who has gifted you with intelligence. Remember who provided you with the tools you needed to study. Glorify God. And when you've made it through the day, having cooked and cleaned and taught your children and put them to bed on time, and you feel satisfied in your work, remember who gave you the strength of will. Your own power did not see you through the day. Glorify God. When you enjoy the love and intimacy of your spouse, when you're glad that they're in your life, remember who placed them there. Remember who joined the two of you together. You may not be as charming and as attractive as you think. Glorify God. Remember Jesus in John 12, when anticipating his grim task of going to the cross, said, But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This was Jesus' mission when he came to earth. It should be ours as well. <coughs> In conclusion, brothers and sisters, what I want us to remember is that those who humble themselves before God will, in due time, be exalted by God. He doesn't owe us the reward of exaltation, but He is pleased to offer it. When we embrace humility and seek not to exalt ourselves, but seek instead the exaltation that comes from God, we are giving Him the glory that He rightly deserves. God exalted Christ for his humility and will also exalt those who believe in him. Just as Christ's body was raised to life, immortal and glorious, we too will share in his resurrection and everlasting life. And just as Christ ascended, one day when that trumpet blows, we too will be called up to meet him in the air. Finally experiencing the fullness of being seated with him in heavenly places. And even as Christ will return to reign on the earth, we will reign with him. We too experience these four stages of exaltation because we are in Christ. So praise be to God that He pours out His blessings on the humble. So if you are hearing me tonight, Know that you must humble yourself before God, if you want to have any hope of tasting in the blessings of this reward. If you are not a believer, recognize that you are a sinner in need of a saviour. Recognize that God's wrath is waiting to be poured out upon you on account of your sin. Do not boast in your own perceived goodness. The scriptures say that there is none righteous, not one. Do not allow your pride to fool you into thinking that you are better than you are. If you would call yourself a believer but are still trusting in your own effort and good works to save you from your sin, repent and humble yourself before God. Only the righteousness of Christ is sufficient to remove the wrath of God from upon your head. Your own righteousness is as filthy rags. And it is the height of pride to think that you could appease God's holy wrath by your feeble efforts done with impure motives. Stop trying to be good enough to be accepted by God. You will fail. Instead, recognize your failure and turn and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ done on your behalf. Then, go and do your good works out of appreciation and love for God. Humble yourself before God. Take your prideful trust off of yourself and believe in His Son. Believe that He really was the Son of God. That He really lived and He really died upon a cross to bear the sins of all those who have put their faith in Him. Believe that on the third day He rose from the dead. Having paid the price for your sins, for your pride, for your boasting. And if you believe this, Rest assured that you have become a partaker in His reward, a partaker in the grace of God. So may we all seek to be humble like Christ, looking forward to that blessed reward of exaltation, all to the praise and glory of God who has richly blessed us in Christ.